Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. The message for everyone paying big wireless way too much. Please, for the love of everything good in this world, stop. With Mint, you can get premium wireless for just $15 a month. Of course, if you enjoy overpaying, no judgments, but that's weird. Okay, one judgment. Anyway, give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 for three months required. New subscribers only. Renew for 12 months to lock in savings. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See mintmobile.com. Good day, good evening, or wherever the fuck it is. Welcome to episode four of an Earful podcast. And this episode, illustrated Graham Humphreys, who is notably known for the work on the Nightmare on Elm Street and all the other Nightmare on Elm Streets, uh, Evil Dead, House of Frozen Corpses, and much, much more. Yeah, so we do dive into um, how these pieces came to be uh, for the Evil Dead, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street and all that. Um, How he approaches uh, creating these pieces of art. We also talk about the influence of the music in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, more over goth music and the Batcave, which was a highlight for me, (laughs) as you know. Of course. Um, And uh, yeah, and we also just get on to talking um, about classic horrors and... More like the Hammer horror films and British uh, cult films, all that sort of stuff. So yeah, we've packed a lot into this episode, to be honest. So yeah, do you know what? After doing this episode, I realised I need to rewatch a shitload of horrors. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, um, so for all of Graham's work, we're going to link below to his website, his book that he talks about, Hung Drawn and Executed, and where to follow Graham. Highly recommend it. Such a cool dude, as you're about to find out on this episode. Enjoy. 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 And we're off. Anything we say now is public record. (laughs) (laughs) Good job we're not live. Yeah, it is. Oh, God, yeah. Right, I'm going to get this out of the way before I like babble on about it too much. But I've got to say that you have probably like created one of like my favourite movie posters ever. So I'm going to get that out of the way now. <laughs> Do it to just break the ice, and then we can go from there. So yeah, Elm Street one. Huge okay. fan of your poster on that one. It seems to be the most popular of all the ones I've done. Um, and and uh, uh, yeah, so thank you anyway. Though. I appreciate that. It's very much appreciated. <laughs> And do you get that a lot? Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, um, yeah, and I don't mind. I mean, it's, 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 it's very, very uh, flattering, of course, though. And it's just weird because it's such an old piece that, um, mm. you know, mm. I don't think it really meant that much to people at the time, bizarrely. It just, um, it's only in the last sort of uh, eight years or so that people have started saying this. And really? It's um, a generational thing that uh, perhaps it's... Um, People that saw the poster when they were like kids, really, uh, and it kind of, um, you know, they kind of look back and they think, well, that, that was something that created an impact. I mean, people look back at their formative years. I mean, I do the same thing myself, and you, you realize certain things really kind of, um, you know, left an impression in your mind, and you're not kind of aware of that until later in life. Um, so I guess that might be one of the reasons, anyway. Okay? But I used to carry it around in my portfolio, the original artwork, uh, simply because, you know, it just didn't seem precious to anybody and it wasn't that precious to me either so this is carrying this original painting and um you know as if it was just like a you know old piece of paper <laughs> that's crazy 
I'm curious, what, what have, you, <laughs> have you got it framed in your own house now? Or is it, no, is I, I actually parted company with it um, about five years ago. I, I, as part of an exchange deal with um, a guy who uh, uh, agreed to publish a book of my work and um, uh, set up an exhibition as well, of, you know, it's a retrospective exhibition. And, um, you know, part of that was that I'd worked out how much a book and an exhibition would cost. And um, um, it was all very ridiculous. It was on this kind of TV programme where basically you, you kind of uh, bring along stuff and hope to sell to a buyer or four buyers in, in, in the programme. Yeah. Dealers. And basically they're looking for something they can then sell on. Anyway, he, he basically said he, he it was one of his favourite posters and he wanted it for his own collection. And... Um, I sort of believed him, and uh, anyway, the idea was that he, he would have that painting and the Evil Dead 2 and um, give me some sort of nominal fee, uh, and basically he would pay for the book and the exhibition, plus I'd get 50% of all the book sales, which sounded great. Right. Uh, as it happened, I've never seen a penny from the book. Um, oh. I did get the exhibition. The book was published in a, a kind of um, very limited, very expensive form. <laughs> um, difficult for horror fans to buy and you know I just thought it was a bit ill-conceived really and um and then he sold on both pieces of artwork at huge profits I mean you know I, I know how much he um Nyron Elm Street went for and I, I fortunately I know who has it as well so I probably can get visiting rights if I want to <laughs> and, um yeah uh, the guy has said that if I wanted to exhibit it at any point uh as long as the gallery was secure obviously then he'd be happy for me to show it the one piece I do have is um, Freddy's Revenge. I still have that here at home. Ah, yeah. um, <laughs> also the original Evil Dead artwork, which I still keep as well, though. Um, which is actually in the corner of this room right now. Oh, go on. You have, to, you have to show us. Can you can you show us with you? Are you okay to wait one second? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Second. Like we're gonna say no. <laughs> <laughs> wait, Matt is just Matt's gonna get a boner in a second. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's just been sitting on the floor, actually. But it's, it's, it's <laughs> anyway. Wow! Oh my God. What? So it's not actually that big. I think, is it? No, yeah, I thought it would be bigger. Yeah, I thought it would be bigger. Yeah, like it's about a three size, I suppose. Which is, you know, what's this about? Um, what? Eighteen inches by about twelve inches or something. It's it's small. Uh, basically, at the time I, I I had so little money that um, um I had to work small scale just simply to save the cost of the paper and paint um, yeah. so everything i did it was quite small <laughs> i work a bit bigger now yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so how big was the elm street poster in comparison to that say so was it a bigger scale run about the same size it was just a little bit bigger to be quite yeah. not big at all um uh, again you know it was just a, a, a free con <laughs> reasons um and you know it was just a comfortable size to work at at the time I, I, I find that um, just working slightly larger now is just I can work faster basically and mm. um, you know because everything's deadline driven so um, you know the, 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 the speed with which you work is, is quite key yeah to whether you make money or not essentially it's yeah. but that's the, the bottom line you know so uh, was the Evil Dead one one of your first commission pieces for a film um, it was it was not but it was the first that I tend to um, say was the most influential and the, the piece that actually kick-started my career. I had worked on um, a couple of posters before that. I mean, literally just months before because um, literally it was about the second year I was actually working. I, I just left college. Yeah. And 
the first one was um, a bit of a disaster and, you know, people still bring it up. And um, I think bringing it up is probably <laughs> the right word. But uh, I, I did a poster for the Monster Club um, and that was about 1981. And um, really, I don't think I had the skill set to pull it off properly. And um, uh, and also, there was some difficulty with it, in as much that the in within the brief, which was a very specific brief, they gave me a sketch. So we need this. So literally, it's almost like tra- tracing off the sketch, um, and just you know, view it with your own style and colours, which I did. Uh, but they thought the colours were looked a bit too kind of um, frightening because they were aiming uh, for a sort of a, a sort of kids kind of um, family kind of uh, approach for the poster, which, you know, was kind of yeah. odds really with what it was. Uh, and um, and so they kind of rejected that first piece of artwork, which was quite, you know, quite a big thing for me at the time. It was like a real, you know, kind of blow. But they said that um, if, if you can deliver a second piece with, with sort of more family-friendly colours, um, then, then that's fine. We'll, we'll just go ahead. So um, I had two days, and so I, I kind of literally worked three nights, two days, just non-stop, um, which I've never done again since, and I was hallucinating by the end of it. But I delivered this piece of art, which they printed, and um, they were happy with it, and it's still, I, I still think it's one of the most embarrassingly bad pieces I've ever done in my life. Like, but that's, that's the first one. I don't really like to talk about it that much, but I just did, actually. Sorry <laughs> to, bring, to make you <laughs> better that. Same client um, had just... Um, uh, bought in distribution rights for Toby Hooper's Funhouse. And they commissioned me to do a poster for that. And um, naively, I didn't even know who Toby Hooper was. I mean, I knew the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I didn't know, I didn't know much about who directed it or anything like yeah. that. <clears throat> uh, I was quite naive about um, my films. But uh, anyway, they wanted it quite quick. And, um, and so I did some sketches and they quite liked them. And, and then they said, oh, by the way, we're going to release it as a double bill suddenly. So, um, you know, the whole format had to change. And then they said, we're releasing with My Bloody Valentine. So okay. I ended up doing two pieces of artwork for the one double bill. Um, so that was my second poster. Uh, again, you know, it's, it's not a piece I'm particularly <clears throat> happy with. And I think I'm still finding my stride. Yeah. In a way, in looking, you know, trying to get confidence in what I was doing. And I think I was holding back on those pieces. And that was probably the problem. Whereas with Evil Dead, you know, I, just, I thought, you know, sod it, I'm just going to do what I want. I, I did, and fortunately it was a, um, something that worked um, for the client and for the um, audience as well. So, uh, and for Sam Raimi, I'm very happy to say. So, um, so that really is uh, what I would call ground zero in terms of um, poster, uh, poster work. Yeah. So how did you get your start in, in regards to um, actually getting in contact with these picture companies and making you start doing uh, this sort of artwork? Well, funny enough, I, 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 uh, I was recalling this earlier on. I was doing a little um, uh, email interview for somebody and they, you know, people always say, how did you get the Evil Dead job? And, you know, go through this whole thing about it, palace pictures and turning up their office with a folio of work and yeah. stuff. And, um, there are, you know, a couple of stories around that. Uh, but mostly, you know, at the time, I, um, we're talking about 1982, uh, and, uh, you know, no mobile phones, no internet, no computers, you know, none of that existed at the time. Also, I had so little money, um, sharing this um, squalid little flat with some friends. We had a telephone which would receive calls, but you couldn't make calls on it. So to make calls, you had to go to the local uh, public telephone box. Yeah. What I was doing all day long, just looking, you know, for contacts and clients, trying to arrange meetings with people. And eventually, uh, a, a friend of a friend suggested 
Paris pictures and they literally just started up business that month I believe or two months before and um, and uh, you know because they were quite new they didn't have um, expectations of uh, how things should look and I think they were looking for a, a different way of working um, I don't know if you know much about Paris pictures they really kind of came out of um, uh, the cinema called the Scala Cinema, which was a it's kind of small cinema in the middle of London, Gooch Street. And they specialised in showing, you know, uh, stuff you couldn't see elsewhere. I mean, John Waters films, for instance, you couldn't see anywhere else, though. Um, Dave Jarman films, um, Thundercrack, the, you know, the, the naughtiest film ever made, which, <laughs> you know, uh, it always was guaranteed to fill up the auditorium. Uh, they showed, you know, music-related um, films, uh, and um, stuff in the 50s, you know, B-movie stuff. Yeah. Um, classic, you know, monster stuff, universal monster stuff. Plus, you know, uh, uh, Herzog films, you know, kind of art, art cinema stuff. And you get double bills, which would be, you know, usually something which is like slightly exploitation-themed with something which would be kind of, you know, quite um, high art, I guess, in many ways. Yeah. They did all-nighters, they Argento, all-nighters, things like that. So they're a great, you know, great. Uh, they're a great cinema, and um, and it attracted an interesting crowd of people, you know, um, musicians, uh, actors, uh, and it's you know, quality to be sitting there watching this odd film, and an actor from the film would actually be in the audience, you know, That's perhaps behind, in front of you. I remember seeing films, you know, like members of the Damned might be sitting behind you. Uh, you know, it's, it's quite, you know, quite an interesting mix. And so they moved from that small premises to the bigger premises in King's Cross. At the same time, they decided to expand uh, on their kind of, um, what, what their knowledge of their fan base was, if you like, and moved into um, VHS. Uh, and so they bought rights to the John Waters films. Which they tried to buy all the stuff they were showing, yeah. which hadn't actually been released um, otherwise at the time. So they were looking for ways the audience could see the films without coming to the cinema. So i.e., you know, other places around the country. Yeah. And uh, part of that was they decided they were going to release their own films. So the first film they released was a film called Diva, the French uh, language film, a sort of thriller. And then they picked up The Evil Dead, um, which I think was, a, they probably picked up the Cannes Film Festival or somewhere like that um, for right. you know, very little money from what I understand. And um, just thought it'd be a fun movie to, uh, uh, to send out. As it happened, I turned up with my folio of work uh, whilst they were wondering what to do with the poster. They knew they didn't want to use the American poster because um, I think they felt it was a little bit tame and a little bit sort of... Uh, uh, um, it, it, it wasn't confrontational in the way they wanted it to be. Yeah. And um, uh, I, I had um, a couple of pieces in my, uh, in my folio which uh, they particularly liked. And um, uh, so this one piece was a picture of... Uh, uh, Joan Crawford fighting off bats in her hair. It, it, very odd, I know. Uh, um, there, there's you know, reasons for that, but uh, anyway, that was the piece they really liked. And so, um, I've said to a few people before, Joan Crawford um, actually, uh, um, I owe my horror career to Joan Crawford, basically. <laughs> 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 you want me dearest. <laughs>
So, so this this company sounds like it. Well, the cinema itself sounds like it was a kind of a big hub for uh, film lovers, and not not your kind of people. Obviously, that will go to your your cinema just on a weekend to watch a film. These were people that went there to to see all these films they normally wouldn't get to see from the US and other places. Yeah, yeah. I mean, basically, it's uh, what you might term transgressive cinema in some right. way. So, for instance, say uh, Thundercrack was you know completely banned. Um, but they had a print and they used to show it. Uh, I don't know how they got away with that, but they did. Um, they also uh, famously used to run Clockwork Orange every now and again, which was right. officially banned in the UK. <laughs> yeah. Um, and they ran into trouble with that, but um, um, and we take to court over it. But they, they, they were quite clever. What they would do is um, they used to store all the films up in the um, some attic space, just all the you know the film reels, their own copies of the yeah. film. Yeah. Yeah. And what they would do is, um, if it was a contentious film, they would simply strip on the front of it. You know, it might be Gone with the Wind or something like that, first reel of Gone with the Wind. So basically, should the censors happen to do a little raid, they would just go for the can and just think, well, that's okay, uh, just ignore it. <laughs> <laughs> Somewhere within that was what they were probably looking for, but they yeah. find it, what they say. There are ways and means of getting around it. But these two host um, festivals there, so what became the London Fright Fest originated at Scala Cinema as uh, Shock Around the Clock, uh, a sort of uh, 24-hour horror event. And they bring over, you know, great guests um, from the States. And um, we had, uh, you know, people like... Um, uh, um, uh, oh, God. Brian <laughs> 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 Yesner. remember Brian Yesner coming over uh, with... People like Greg Nicotero, who had done um, effects on the film. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but who did um, uh, Bugrit, who did the um, uh, necromantic films, uh, they uh, had, um, I'm trying to think now, um, I can't remember. But it was great. But the, the cinema did bring over people like Crucial Gordon Lewis, um, you know, People I didn't, I hadn't heard of myself at the time, and I probably didn't attend a lot of those events simply because I didn't know who they were. Now, of course, I'm kicking myself because I would have had a chance <laughs> to met all those people <laughs> right now. But um, you know, the the cramps rolled up for um, the premiere of Night of the uh, Return of the Living Dead. Yeah, uh, and they so they introduced the film because uh, obviously they had a track track in there, and they were uh, over touring at the time. Um, they used to run uh, Eastern Hero weekends, so you saw the kind of all the John Woo films before anybody knew who John Woo was, for instance, and things like you know Encounters of a Spooky Kind, and um, you know all these like uh, mad kind of uh, um, Korean and and uh, uh, Hong Kong films. Um, so it was a great place, a really good place. And as I say, the All Nighters were always um, interesting because. Um, you know, it, it would attract not only the audience who were there to see the films, but also all the vagrants who were there for a warm, cosy night. Yeah. Uh, it attracted you know, people who were there to smoke drugs and um, just get really drunk. And um, so it could be quite wild sometimes. But, you know, if you've got a John Waters all night, I mean, that's, that's inevitable. <laughs> I, think. I don't think we see any of that anymore, like all-nighters no. in cinemas. It seems to be... Uh, I was speaking with... Um, uh, my girlfriend's dad uh, the other day about when they used to go to uh, the Wigan Casino Club for the annoyance oh, yeah. all nights. Um, yeah, yeah. 
and um, I find it crazy that they just went all night as well, just dancing in there. You just don't see any of any of that anymore. Like everything just had a lot more soul and meaning to it. But yeah, I guess that has been sucked away from you. <laughs> yeah, the, the rules were laxer then, and um, and also I think that's partly because um, uh, you know the world has changed because of the internet as well, and um, you know that that could have been secret knowledge at the time, but now it's just yeah. everybody knows about stuff, so. Um, that you can't conceal things anymore. No. So, um, in regards to music, do you say have you worked with the Cramps before? Did you do some? Oh, I did one, one album cover for them, which yeah. uh, I didn't meet them at all for that. There was no communication whatsoever. Right. Uh, as at the time, um, they'd left the label, uh, which they was based here in the UK, which is Miles Copeland's yeah. um, IRS label. And um, um, they'd fallen out with Miles uh, in quite, you know, severe terms. And um, and anyway, he decided that, um, well, they went to court. Uh, they weren't allowed to record anything new, which is how the Smell of Female album came about, because that was a live recording. So they couldn't go into a studio to record stuff, but they could put out a live album. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Miles was just thinking, and, you know, the band had got, uh, become really, really quite, popular at the time quite big for within the scene in the UK and um, you know they're in high demand and uh, Miles just thought well what we can do is, is just mine the back catalogue here and just put out a compilation album uh, which is what they did and um, because I was doing work with IRS at the time already um, and they knew that I liked the cramps I was an obvious choice for them um, and they knew I'd be cheap as well. might have helped but uh, but anyway, I decided that um, it'd be great to, to do a 3D cover and um, they, they went for it straight away. And, um, you know, that helped propel sales of the album, which went, you know, I mean, it, nowadays a silver album isn't very much, but um, for a band like The Cramps to get a, you know, to go silver was quite a big deal. And so sort of this indie band who actually weren't even allowed to record at the time, suddenly they had a silver um, album. So, um, um, so I've got a silver disc downstairs. I, I've actually oh, wow. gave you a silver disc. That's awesome. Nice. Right, and Humphreys acknowledged the sales of uh, because they said you know I helped propel the sales so um, uh, so that's very gratifying uh, I heard back later that the Crams did like the cover so that was okay but I was a bit worried about being embarrassed by them I'm sure that they could not direct for the company for um, a design she did for a, a single the Crusher and um, they, they didn't like the cover apparently cursed her and I didn't want to be cursed by the Cramps so uh, he's <laughs> Your name on the cover, <laughs> just in case. Not more points. With so, that design, did you? It's from the sounds of it, it sounded like you pitched your idea. Did you ever get any brief of what they were going for, or was it all? No, not at all. There, there had. I think the same release was coming out in America, and they they, they called it "Bad Music for Bad People." It has an illustration on it, which you know, great illustration, but um. I think they just wanted to mark the difference. I think much in the same way that Palace Pictures um, had uh, realised that there was a different kind of audience in the UK, especially at that time, yeah. for horror and for music. Um, and the two kind of went hand in hand in many ways, and the Scala Cinema was the proof of that. I think that uh, uh, because IRS Records had seen my, you know, they need, they need the film poster work, and so they kind of thought that I, I would be able to make a good judge of what was going to sell uh, yeah. in the UK, which, you know, fortunately uh, turned out to be right. 
So, as you were saying, when the music and the movies went hand in hand, and obviously back in the early 80s, late 70s as well, you had uh, London was massive on its goth music. Um, obviously, you had like, the birthday parties using the Banshees and all that, the Batcave. And then along with that, you you had New York, which was coming out with all the like the post-punk sort of stuff as well at the same time. How much of an influence did that have on yourself when it came to uh, working, doing all that sort of thing? Oh, um, I, I, uh, I, I've been exposed to music um, probably at the age of about 16. I went to art college, so I, I went to art college quite early. Most people go when they're 18. But um, I was a bit of a swap, so I had my qualifications. So I went straight in there and... Um, uh, and just at that same time, obviously the punk scene was just breaking in in London. And so, uh, uh, although I was out in um, the West Country, Salisbury, there were a few people at the art college who would travel up to London to see the Sex Pistols and all the other bands. And they kind of brought back the influence back to the college. They were they, they were the first people I ever saw to dress in this kind of way, which um, was quite terrifying for you know quite a rural area at the time. Um, it's the first time I've seen people wearing safety pins and, um, you know, kind of a, 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 a particular ways of doing, you know, wearing your hair and stuff. And it was all quite terrifying for people at the time. But um, I, I actually friended these people uh, fairly swiftly. And um, and um, you kind of realise, actually, there is a little bit more than just the shock value. And, uh, and I, I started getting into the music. And um, so by the time I left college in 1980, I was already a big Susan Banshees fan. And you know the cramps had just really um, emerged, I guess, in the UK as a sort of uh, an act that people could access. Uh, so I carried that with me, and you know, the music really did influence um, everything I was doing. I, I was a huge fan of Joy Division uh, whilst I was at college as well. And um, you know, when you're at college, what you're doing is also, especially in the final year, building up samples of work which you hope will be able to sell you. To clients uh, when you leave. Yeah. So I was already doing work influenced directly by Season of Banshees and Joy Division and um, you know, trying to capture the feel of the music in paint form. And really the Evil Dead poster is very much a direct link to that early work. Um, the technique I used was something I, I developed at college and uh, you know, specifically uh, listening to the type of music that I was. And it was an expression, a way of trying to visualise the sound of punk rock, I guess, yeah. in, in, in sort of paint form uh, and, and the choice of colours and everything else as well. So it was kind of a natural thing for me. And um, when I started working, for instance, with Lords of the New Church, uh, it was Brian James I spoke to um, first, I think, who... who was a big horror mm. fan, and you know, his favourite film was Texas Chainsaw Massacre. He'd just seen *In Evil oh, Dead*, and it was his new favourite <laughs> film. He loved the poster as well, and um, so that was a natural kind of um, a, a natural uh, collaboration, if you like, um, which yeah. you know, kind of um, then sort of uh, led on to working with Brian James in his solo work, and then ultimately, I guess, um, going full circle back to *The Damned* as well, who I adored. Yeah course as well and um was lucky enough to be able to work with them <laughs> over the last few years as well it's crazy i've got to ask though as well because i i am a huge like fan of the goth like set of music alternative rock from the 80s and mm -hmm. 70s what was the back cave actually like then because i'm guessing you had you've been there yeah yeah i used to go up and yeah um, it was, you know, it was my natural habitat, if you like. Yeah. I remember when it first opened, it was announced in the music press and, you know, it said they'd be playing 
blah, 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 the Cramsies and Banshees, you know, all of a sudden, it's the place just for me. Yeah. I remember the very first night it opened and literally the queue was so huge, just couldn't get in. Uh, so I didn't bother going back because I just knew that it was going to be just a hassle <coughs> trying to get there. Uh, <laughs> a few months later, I moved to another location in Leicester Square yeah. and I thought, sort of, I'm going to give it a go. And actually, that was easier to get into. They had more space there and um, uh, so you could move around. I think, you know, they had a, a fire restriction at the previous original place. Right. And I think it was only accessed via a lift or something crazy like that. Oh, wow. But anyway, um, the back cave moved and it moved again a couple of times. And I used to go every single week because I loved it. I loved the music. And, you know, it's just incredible. You go in there and there'd be Susie popping up the bar. There'd be Nick Cave in another corner. That's Mark insane. Bar, you know, um, I saw Kirk Brandon from Theatre of Hate in there hanging out quite often. Just so, suddenly all these people, there was a the music and the people yeah. We're in there having a drink at the bar. It's incredible. But these you know, green old horror films, you know, Universal movies, Daryl Gento stuff. And then, of course, they'd have um, live music every week. So they had the house band, The Specimen, who would perform. Oh, yeah. Uh, I was on Dino, but um, performed once there. But they started um, uh, using a rock drill on the pillars and had to be stopped. <laughs> in case yeah. they, they were never asked back again. Uh, but uh, yeah, I saw... Uh, uh, Jane County, who, who was Wayne County, uh, an electric chair son, performed there a couple of times. Uh, so it was, it was a bit of a mix. You never knew who you were going to be seeing, um, but it was yeah. always interesting. And, um, but just great fun. I mean, they used to play, you know, only, the goth scene was quite new. So yeah. there was only a limited amount of stuff they could actually play, which would be yeah, actually termed goth. Uh, so they used to play a lot of um, glam rock. Um, you know, they, uh, a lot of David Bowie stuff, obviously, but yeah. you know, uh, the sweet um, uh, mud um, T-Rex, obviously. Yeah. Uh, and um, uh, um, although we can hardly say it now, a lot of Gary Glitter as well. <laughs> <laughs> but they used to, um, you know, occasionally you get um, a lot of uh, old uh, rock and roll as well. They'd play. Yeah. Uh, like rock rockabilly sort of stuff, yeah. Oh, yeah, well, yeah. Kind of just at the beginning of that, I guess, as well. So, yeah. uh, for instance, the first time I actually, actually saw the Clams perform live, they were supported by the Meteors. And that's one of their first big shows. And supporting, uh, the, the very, very first act on stage was um, Screaming Lord Such, which, of course, goes back to the 1960s and early 70s, I guess, which was uh, an era which kind of uh, inspired people like, um, I, I guess... Uh, well, the Cramps, you know, idolised uh, Screaming Lord such, and I think they were kind of remembering yeah. early days more so. And I do remember, I knew who he was, and I knew that, you know, he, he'd been quite a sort of um, alternative figure in, in his day uh, with, you know, songs like Jack the Ripper and uh, Vampire yeah. Mary. Um, so there was a horror, you know, a horror theme to his music, and actually the night was billed as the night of horror rock. It was a Halloween night, so it was the Cramps, uh, the Meteors, Screaming Lord Bar, bar house and stuff like that. They, uh, I has really kind of hit their stride, I think. Um, yeah. But uh, I remember Screaming Lord Such was brought on in a coffin uh, by these <laughs> and performed his first song from inside the coffin. And everybody thought, this is fantastic. It's oh, brilliant. And then <laughs> made the fatal mistake of getting out. And uh, I saw this kind of middle-aged, portly gentleman, um, <laughs> just a little bit disappointing visually. <laughs> um and it kind of went down and no, he's booed off stage, basically. Oh, God. What? Yes. I, lo I love the dedication, though, because I saw a clip of uh, Peter Murphy not long back, and he was uh, 
hanging upside down on stage whilst he was singing. You know, like bat style. I was on that sex level dedication, like doing it, performing a full song upside down. Okay, yeah, that, that's very impressive. That's all bang house stuff. Especially if they pass out though. Yeah, well, he's probably not. He's probably on something, but um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> bang house once in their original form, and that would have been about 1983, probably. Right. At the, um, uh, I think it was the um, Adelphi Theatre in the Strand. And they did two nights there, and they, uh, I know that the front rows of the, of the theatre were torn out. Um, it was a seated venue, but of course nobody was going to sit down. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I sit in front, just remove the seats, as you do. obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's been great. I caught, I caught him not long back with uh, they brought David J back to do a tour with him. That's right. I caught him in Manchester. Um, I think it was a couple of years ago, which was yeah, that was pretty cool. He still got it, Peter Murphy. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I saw them. Um, where was it now? Um, Might have been Peterborough or somewhere like that. Though. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, of course, I had tickets to go and see them at Alexandra Palace um, yeah. this year. Of course, I had to be. Cancelled and postponed uh, to next year, um, but yeah, the original lineup, which has been fantastic, yeah. to see, well, hopefully still will be fantastic to see. Oh, so many, so many bands like that. Like, watching the, even like the early Cure, like early Cocktoo Twins, uh, Sisters of Mercy back in the day with the original lineup. Uh, yeah. you, well, you live through it all anyway, and uh, yeah. Well, also, Gellis, you, know, Gellis. <laughs> you could be quite nonchalant about it. You know, it's just like oh, you know, Sisters of Mercy playing. Shall we go? No, probably not. Yeah, you could just you just thought that all those bands would be around forever, but of course they yeah, weren't. yeah. Um, but you know, one of the, I guess one of the surviving bands up until you know only really a few years ago, I suppose about ten years ago, was Susan Banshee. So you know, carried on um, through, through you know a good sort of three three decades, um, you know, doing great stuff, and you yeah. know, shows were always really good as well. Um, and you know, you kind of just thought they would never ever end, but of course, you know, all good things do. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah. Nick Cave carried on, obviously, but he's changed a lot in music-wise compared yeah. to uh, what he released with the birthday party. Well, I was lucky enough to see the birthday party in its first incarnation, and that would have been about 1980, I think 1981, and they performed a tiny little venue in West Hampstead called the Moonlight Club, which probably held about 100 people, but fact, uh, just below a, a pub. And um, we just saw advertised. It was just literally just a quick walk down the road. And so, yeah, we yeah. saw this amazing show, really low ceiling, very hot and sweaty. Um, it was that original lineup, and it was fantastic, though. And they had just, um, I think they were just, they just released, released the bats. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, amazing, though. That's pretty cool. That's mental. I was going to say then that I don't know if it's just from my perspective, but in my personal opinion, it's that with bands. I think they run on a shorter duration now than what they previously did mm. because there's such a demand and need to be constantly releasing stuff over and over and over again and then everything else that con- now comes with being in a band like this, the social media side of it and basically having to have some sort of PR degree to be able to have a, a functioning band. Yeah. I think that like lifespan wise it's so much shorter than what it used to be. We have bands that like, last like 10 to 15 years now it's like five yeah, I think it's, it was it used to be more grassroots in many ways. I mean, the bands would cut their teeth, you know, on small, small gigs, you know, supporting other yeah. bands and um, just work their way up. So, I mean, it would take you know a while for them to um, gain an audience, you know, without the internet, of course. So, 
uh, without social media. So it was very much a word of mouth thing in many ways. And, you know, you relied on a few, uh, you know, John Peel, of course, you know, had, uh, was so intrinsic to the whole punk scene. Uh, it, you know, you can't emphasise that enough, really. Um, and, and Nightingale's programme um, also introduced bands that, you know, you wouldn't have heard otherwise. So, I mean, the first time I heard Season of Banshees was on a Sunday afternoon on, um, you know, on a radio programme. And uh, 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 I would not have heard them otherwise, though. Um, I think yeah. Bondi also, you know, had their first, you know, to shreds, I think, you know, first came on a Sunday afternoon radio programme. Nobody would have heard that otherwise, though. So, yeah, those radio programmes were, were really important in... Um, uh, promoting the bands and uh you know and then the music press of course um you relied on those to to kind of give you information and uh, feed you the stuff and um you know i think they struggled to keep up with the pace of um change which was happening at that time because you know a lot of stuff happened within a very short period of time period of about seven years you know 1976 through to you know 1982 um so you know went from punk rock to to goth very very quickly and if you think of that timeline now, um, and all the bands that happened at that time, you know that, that's quite an amazing, um, quite an amazing shift culturally. Hundred yeah. percent. So um, going going back to uh, some of the some of the artwork, like, I wasn't going back. <laughs> yeah, to the after, after the- I'm really going back to golf. <laughs> I could go on about it forever, but yeah, I'm just going to get more jealous when you keep mentioning more bands. So yeah, we'll shift on from that. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, going back to some more of the artwork that you've done, you've done one of my favourite, like recent-ish, uh, sort of like an indie film, um, House of a Thousand Corpses. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, um, you know, that, at that time it was interesting because the, the the I guess it's to do with desktop publishing in many ways that. Um, yeah. Illustration just fell out of favour very quickly, overnight almost, it seemed. And uh, everybody wanted Photoshop stuff. And um, so for a period of about, probably about 10 years, really, I was illustrating still, but nothing that really people would have seen. It was all kind of, you know, just jobbing stuff. Um, yeah. You know, a lot of cartoon work, uh, publishing stuff, book covers, magazine work. But, you know, a little bit was horror uh, or genre work. But uh, fortunately, um, I, I was introduced to Tartan Films um, through a mutual friend who had just started working there. And I hit it off with Hamish McAlpine, who was um, just in the process of producing his first film, uh, Gein, about Ed Gein. And so I did some um, kind of rough ideas for a poster that none of which were used. Um, it didn't matter because we made the contact at that point. Yeah. And then suddenly I found myself doing, you know, a lot of their VHS covers and um, posters. I mean, I did loads of quads for them and loads of VHS covers and obviously um, DVD uh, as that kind of um, emerged. Uh, and virtually all of it is Photoshop stuff, you know, ad- adapting other artwork or perhaps sometimes having to photograph stuff myself to add into other existing elements. Uh, for instance, um, we did a poster and, um, you know, um, I think it was just VHS and might have been DVD, very early DVD at the time, uh, audition. And the image they had was so blurry. Um, so I had to do a huge amount of retouching on the girl's face. And I just knew the hand with the syringe just was so blurry. It just looked rubbish, yeah, especially blown up onto a quad yeah. poster. Yeah, like. yeah. <clears throat> so I hired uh, a, a, um, 
a, a sort of very nasty looking syringe from this props company it's you know glass and steel and uh because the office was in middle of soho just nipped down to the local um uh, s&m emporium and bought um this kind of pvc glove and the silicone spray so i got somebody in the studio to, to one of the girls to wear the glove and you know sprayed it and she held the syringe and i was photographed that and then used that on the poster um alongside the you know original image of the girl so i mean it looks you know you wouldn't know it's not the same image but um it's just what you have to do to make things work so uh, yeah, a lot of it, it requires some ingenuity um uh, because you know materials would quite often be quite terrible yeah uh, yeah yeah to make things look good uh so um so that was great i, mean, I enjoyed doing it uh, it was a good 10 years and then tartan went the way of palace as well they kind of eventually probably um uh i think it kind of just got too ambitious should we say and the money just ultimately wasn't there to prop up potential failure um especially when you go into film production you can lose a lot of money quite quickly um uh, but yeah so that was a a good period but towards the end of that period was when house of a thousand corpses um was released and um originally i suggested doing an illustration um something which kind of be more akin to like a freak show poster like yeah. um, so that was the concept and uh but literally there wasn't a time and they weren't prepared to to pay the money uh, for my time which you know would have been it would have been a complex job and um yeah, quite rightly they knew that i would have to be you know paid properly for it and um the budget simply wasn't there so i, I just went the photoshop routes but trying to give it the feel of an of an illustration yeah. um so i could uh, especially in pushing the colours and contrast and everything. Uh, so that's how House of a Thousand Corpses um, happened. And I love the film, of course, as well. I thought it was fantastic. Um, and yeah. it, it would have been great to have done an illustrated poster for that. Uh, at some point, I'm sure it will happen. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, a lot of these films are coming back um, um, my way. It seems with private commissions, you know, from groups in, in the US, yeah. individuals here in the UK. And I'm sure at some point... That will be one of the projects that will come up. Uh, well, I hope so anyway. So it'll be a chance to just redress the balance and actually do what I should have done at the time. Yeah. Well, you you could have filled us in a way because from that poster, man, it's pretty. Uh, it's pretty perfect from a from a Photoshop perspective as well. It's crazy. Oh, good. Um, well, I, I picked all the good stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious about. In well, this could be a two-part question on this. Actually, where. First of all, in terms of like a company giving you a brief for a project, what timescales, what do they initially give you to go off? And then the next bit of that is creativity-wise, where do you start? Because obviously there must be something where it goes, I want it to the composition of this piece of work to look such a certain way. For example, like the Elm Street one, with obviously the street and the glove. Is there something where there's an a first position you kind of go off to then kind of go, I want it to look such a certain way, or do you just kind of just roll with it or do multiple drafts? Yeah, it's probably, um, it's changed over the years, the way that uh, commissioning happens. I mean, when I first started working, there were what I'd call dedicated art directors at companies who, whose job it was to seek out artists and commission work uh, for posters, book covers, that kind of thing, record covers. That doesn't really happen anymore. Um, 
but uh, um, you know, you, you would you would get specific briefs sometimes. Uh, sometimes you wouldn't. Um, sometimes they would just let you trust you uh, on the strength of previous work. For instance, you know, when I did the All Dead poster, that that uh, generated a lot of interest for VHS, VHS cover work, and the trust was that I would deliver something which would, you know, ultimately um, bring the success that the Evil Dead did. Of course, that's not going to happen because it's still the still the film has to be good, you know, and if it's not good. It's not gonna. It's not gonna work anyway. No matter what you do, it seems. So, um, uh, what what did seem to happen quite often was that a client would actually tell you what they didn't want. Uh, so, for instance, with the Nightmare on Elm Street, what they didn't want was an Evil Dead looking thing. Uh, what they did want was something completely different. Uh, so it was a challenge for me. I mean, I, I knew I could do it because I've, I, I've I've done already work which didn't look anything like the Evil Dead. And people just didn't even think it was my work because it looked so different. Um, and I think the Norman Elm Street proved that I could actually take stuff away in a different direction, uh, uh, which you know opened up things quite a lot from that point on. But um, so yes, it was it was in that instance a question of what they didn't want, which um, you know shaped how Norman Elm Street looked. And I, again, I think by the time Freddy's Revenge happened, they they kind of trusted me just to do you know to use my instincts and largely probably going on to the second part um it is instinct generally and a lot of the ideas could be quite spontaneous uh what you'd normally do is watch the film first i mean in the 80s especially you'd probably go to a screening um at the cinema you might sit there with a lot of people you know um journalists sometimes it'd just be you on your own and you you'd watch the film then come away and then you know go back with what you think would be appropriate uh, an appropriate way to approach the film and um and then go from there uh i think one of the best um uh uh instances of a poster where we kind of went in i went in with a friend i, I designed this thing with a friend um when we did poster for um uh, which one was it though it's when we, um we did a little poster with a lampoon of the james bond gun barrel uh, yeah. <laughs> and what we did um because they were looking for a teaser idea for the, for the film and they thought the teaser would probably be something which would generate interest ahead of the film they said you know people are going to go and see an iron on street film whatever fans anyway though so you know they, they thought they could have fun with um, some sort of teaser campaign so we literally just walked into the office and you know we just used the vhs player and we'd queued up the opening titles for i think it was literally dr no the very first bond film and literally just they saw the gun barrel the blood coming down we just froze frame saying instead of the gun it will be the knives and they said fantastic let's do it because the new james bond films are just just about to be released <laughs> and i think it was such a funny idea and they knew it'd probably piss off you know um whoever it was universal warners and um and it did uh and, uh, <laughs> The posters went up, and within two days, they had a sort of cease and desist. They were told they didn't pick down the posters that they prosecuted, and um, they they took down. Well, they they were covered over. They weren't taken down. They were covered over. But um, by that point, you know, they had done its job, and um, the fact that it popped up in magazines saying, you know, Palace Pictures threatened with legal action, and they print the poster. You know, so it's. <laughs> Read in a viral kind of way before viral advertising actually existed, if you like. Yeah. Uh, so it certainly did its job. I used to have a whole bunch of copies of that poster, and I sort of gave them away over the years. And I wish I'd kept them there because people 
you know, keep saying, have you got any copies? I don't even have the little black and white artwork. I don't know where that went. It all disappeared. Probably got thrown away. I don't know. Oh, no. Well, all these things, you know, in the time when you're doing them, they're all kind of, they are a bit throwaway. In yeah, yeah. Of, yeah. You know, the Evil Dead, we thought that film would, um, you know, do its run. In three months' time, people forget about it, uh, and that would be it. You go on to the next job, and, um, you know, you never expect that, you know, 40 years later, um, it, it has become this kind of cult classic. You don't, you can anticipate that, and it, it doesn't happen for every film, but some some it does, and, and you kick yourself afterwards, they so think, oh, I should have kept all this, all this material, and, you know, I mean, lucky I've got that poster here still. Eh? Evil Dead. <laughs> yeah. That's that's how uh, ideas get generated, though, isn't it? You you come up with these ideas, and before you know it, you've lost hours and have so many drafts. And usually, what happens is when you watch a film, it's, you know there'll be something which will leap out quite quickly. Um, for instance, with Freddy's Revenge, that opening sequence uh, I, I was so striking. And then it went downhill once the film started. And there was nothing in the film I could see that I thought would be ex- as exciting as that opening moment. Yeah. That's why that became the poster for Freddy's Revenge. Yeah. Sequence. But, you know, I, I mean, nowadays what tends to happen is um, I watch a film, you know, you just think about it, maybe watch it twice even. And um, what happens is, is it in the sort of moments before you just go to sleep and when you wake up in the morning, it's when you're not really thinking about stuff, suddenly it will present itself. Yeah. So mostly I do get these kind of ideas that just come to me and, you know, they're almost complete ideas. I, I know exactly what the composition would be, what the colours would be, how the type will look. And it's almost a fully formed poster. So the idea is to hang on to that moment, trying yeah. to remember what it is. Yeah. And, uh, and then just try and recreate it as best you can. And those are the posters which I think always work the best um, because they are spontaneous. They come from within sign. It's all the stuff that's going on in my head, all the years of watching stuff and all the other influences that come in. And it just, you know, just happens. It's just, it's like a ping and it's suddenly yeah. there. I love the, um, I always read about like people's creative process and half the time it's whenever they sit down and try and get something down, it never hits them. But as soon as they go for a walk or go for a shower, it pops yeah. up in the head. No, I mean, I, I try and go swimming as much as I can because that's actually, because, you, you, you know, it's like sensory deprivation. So you, you, there's yeah. nothing there except for what's going on in your head. And um, stuff comes quite often when I'm swimming. Walking, you, you're right there. I mean, I, I, I've got a you know, blessed with a big common at the end of the road, Tooting Common. And, um, you know, it's got some great wooded areas where you can just get away from everything and yeah, stuff will come then sometimes as well. Uh, but yeah, it's, it literally is the waking moments and sometimes I'll dream a poster and then you have to try and hold on to that, you know, hold on to your dreams, they say. <laughs> 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 so on regular occasions, I've sort of woken up in the middle of the night and written down a, a quick little note. Yeah, I was going to say. When but you know, the idea is strong, it, it just stays with you and lingers anyway. Though. So yeah, it's, it's spontaneous and also you have to trust your own um, instincts and judgment as well. And as I say, it always ends up being the strongest stuff. So, but really, you, you're kind of getting a glimpse into my mind when you look at the poster. Cool. <laughs> I like that, yeah, I like that. Being afraid, as they say. <laughs> Do you get, so for example, with the Elm Street 2 poster, obviously it's quite a big shot of Freddy. Um, do you get any, like, shots of Robert England, or is it just freehand, you just do it in whatever position? And Yeah, well, no, nowadays, you tend to get a screener, it'll be just like a Vimeo link or, you know, a, 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 you'll get some sort of link and 
you could do screen grabs, which are quite good quality. You know, if the film was good enough quality, you, you get good reference material. Back then, um, it would be literally um, a set of press stills, which quite often be black and white photographs, um, and uh, um, sort of a, a sort of sheets of transparencies, you know, 35 mil transparencies, which are always duplicated on. So they're always a bit blurry and a bit rubbish anyway, though. So um, you'd have to rely on a mix of stuff. And occasionally I would have to literally take photographs off a TV screen of a frozen frame on a video. And if you've ever tried to freeze frame a video, you know, it's just terrible. Yeah. Um, but that's how I, I had the image of um, uh, Heather for Nine on Elm Street. Literally, yeah. I just, so patient, I just kept freeze framing the shot of her sleeping until literally one one sort of moment of freeze framing, it wasn't juddering all over the place. So she just yeah. took that picture there and then, and that was the only one of all the shots I took that I could actually use. Oh, wow. Uh, wow. So literally I had, um, I've actually even got a very device here somewhere. Yes, there you go. Uh, this little thing, it's, uh, you can put your slide in there and you just hold it up to the light. And so yeah. you could, literally I was holding it up to the light with one line and, yeah, you know, oh my god! Wow, I know. <laughs> that's insane. Things you have to do. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> so uh, nowadays, are you working with? Is it Arrow Video? From what I've read, uh, with I the re-releases I've, that I've done, yeah. I've not done anything with them since the beginning of the summer. The last thing I did um, for them was some something called Bloodstone. Uh, director. I did Blood Tide, Bloodstone, and um, uh, The Wind, it was called as well. Sort of yeah. three films, same director. Um, I've not done anything since. Um, uh, however, I'm doing work with Second Sight and 88 films and other kind of fabulous films as well. Yeah. Um, so, um, so I'm, I'm yeah, really busy at the moment. Though. You know, I think the lockdown has um, been quite good for my type of work yeah. in many ways. I mean, I work as a sort of solitary individual, if you like. So, it, you know, the pandemic hasn't really affected me because I was already in isolation, if you like, <laughs> 40 years. So, uh, <laughs> I lockdown. Um, uh, but also home entertainment is, you know, fulfilling its, its more urgent need, shall we say, at the moment when people have more time and can, you know, go to the cinema and stuff. Uh, you know, streaming is obviously one thing, but um, people are still buying physical stuff. It's just they're not going to shops now to buy it. They have to buy it over the internet mostly. Uh, so so that's still ongoing. Um, uh, I've been doing a lot more private commission stuff as well over the last summer. So uh, I have um, an individual who's commissioned a number of pieces from me already. Um, the very last thing I did for him was um, uh, posted for Jaws. That's one of his favourite films. I think I've seen that. Is that on your website? It is, yes. Yeah, it looked fantastic. You're on there now, yeah. Um, which, you know, it's one of those things you're a bit frightened about doing because it's one of those classic films that uh, has some really, um, you know, intense fans out there that, um, yeah. you know, you're, you're easily going to disappoint so many people by whatever you do. And, um, you know, you have to kind of just think, just, you know, just focus on what you want to do and try to ignore what you anticipate will be the um, um, the chatter out there. Yeah. Uh, fortunately, most people seem to like it. In fact, I don't think anybody's actively disliked it, so that's been good. But um, 
I've just done a, a, a commission for Hellraiser as well, which um, oh. is sort of a, a major film in the, sort of the horror canon. And um, again, approaching that was uh, um, that was a dream poster as well. And it just came to me and um, I just knew exactly what I was going to be doing with it. Um, but also I watched the film about three times in a row. I have to admit, I wasn't a bigger fan of, of the film as I probably should be at the time. But when I looked at the film again, looking for those little moments which are not, you know, so well known, I actually found it to be a much richer film. And as soon as you get away from the Cenobites, um, you, if you, as long as you stop focusing on Pinhead, which everybody else does, yeah, yeah, trying to remove that from the equation, then you realise it's actually so much more. And um, and also what I like about Hellraiser is it's quite grubby as well. You know, it's set in this nasty little house up in North London. And everything's just you know, it's peeling wallpapers, and everybody's it's just cold and miserable looking, and everybody's just got this, these horrible clothes and horrible hair. <laughs> um, and it's just quite fascinating because it's just literally you just feel dirty after watching it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um, I, I, I uh, so I've done this poster. It's a um, it's a private commission for a group, but uh, um, the arrangement will be that um, when the group have their own. Um, uh, limited edition screen prints, then I'll, I'll be able to run off some A3 copies. Um, and a friend of mine bought the artwork off of me, it's his favourite film. And the idea was, um, I was going to hand over the artwork in a tube outside the house where they shot Hellraiser, which is in Crickwood, Crickwood Lane up in North London. Right. Uh, the lockdown made that a little bit difficult to do, so we just oh. had to go to a pub in the West End instead. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever been approached by uh, these companies and they're doing like reissues of horror soundtracks like Mondo or Waxwork Records where they'll have like special commission printing of like, for example, Nightmare on Elm Street or The Exorcist and stuff like that where they've had like this unique artwork just for this reissue? Have you ever been approached for something like that? Well, aside from the Death Vault stuff, um, I've done a number of, I did a number of the Death Vaults. Uh, uh, the last thing I did was, as they were part of Mondo, was the Evil Dead reissue soundtrack um which it entailed you know quite two no, yeah two quite lavish illustrations yeah uh, recently um i've just done a soundtrack for uh um zombie flesh eaters a uh, new cover for that for an italian company uh which i think i had an idea they might be releasing it for halloween um I, i've not shown it to anybody yet because it's it's sort of confidential and yeah <laughs> And then of course the um I did some recent stuff for Demon Records. Uh, uh, we did the Vault of Horror, which was the Gates of Hell trilogy. Um, so that entailed about four quite quite you know, involved illustrations. Um, and we're doing another Vault of Horror Italian collection LP as well, which would be a sort of you know compilation image of all, all, all the various films represented on the soundtrack. Um, uh, other than that, nothing at, actually at this moment is in the schedule other than that. But, uh, you know, these things kind of come along. So, um, you know, uh, at this moment in time and for the last five years, I've not actually actively been looking for work because it's just been coming in. Yeah. Which is great. So, uh, um, you know, for me, it's a, it's a question of um, just making sure I have the time to do everything and, and try and fit things within the deadline as well, though. So the schedule currently is taking me up till February next year. Wow. It looks like uh, the amount of work. Um, you know, I have to be realistic about what can be achieved in, 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 within time. 
and um, so you juggle with deadlines. You know that you know one job might be needed in two weeks, another one you know gives you a month, another one might be three months down the line. And uh, uh, sometimes you know the clients will actually try to shift their deadlines to accommodate uh, me doing the artwork for them, which is you know, great when that happens. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I've been very very fortunate in that respect, and. Um, you know, largely the work has been stuff I've been really enjoying doing as well, though. So, uh, um, so yeah, I feel quite lucky. I mean, it's you know, it's it's a very different position to the one I was in forty years ago, for instance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Is there um, a preference of the amount of time you like to have? Because I know we're musicians, us three, and I know sometimes a deadline like way far away is too too much freedom sometimes the limitations are quite nice yeah i understand exactly what you're saying yes that is that can be a problem um because the thing is though when you when you do a job you you, you're you're, um uh the way you approach it is is very much of that moment that actually you know two months down the line you might actually approach something in a completely different way yeah absolutely Um, sometimes you do look back and you think god i wish i'd done you know this so much differently but it's too late then you have to accept what you do is what you do at that time you know, let it go as such. They don't don't carry that kind of burden with you. Um, but also, that that's part of the whole learning process for me. Anyway, though, you know, you kind of look back and you see the flaws in your work, and you learn from those, and you know that that affects the way you you, you approach the next job. Um, but mostly, I'd say that um, things usually happen within two months. So when I'm approached to do a job, it's usually you know that you, you'd expect you would be you'd have done the job within those two that two month period. So uh, you know, often people ask me, you know, can you do this within the next two weeks? And the answer is usually going to be no. Uh, a month, I can probably do that because I can shift stuff around. So you do kind of move things, you know, to try and accommodate as uh, best you can. But things, once you're on a job, um, it happens quite swiftly. You know, you do that, you spend probably a day, maybe two days looking at the material over and over again, coming up with the ideas, doing your sketches and layouts. And then at the approval stage, it's literally anywhere between uh, two to five days. And at the end of that time, I mean, five days to me is too long to spend on something. It's also because much, much like music, you, you, you lose the spontaneity then. And, um, yeah, absolutely. And yeah. it becomes quite, quite quickly. So for me, it's important to work very, very fast. And, um, you know, I want to get stuff done within two days or three days maximum if I can. Uh, very complex jobs will take longer simply because it's more like doing three or four jobs in one go. Yeah. You just literally cannot do stuff that fast. I mean, the, a good example of that would be, um, I did a piece called, uh, which is for a documentary called In Search of Tomorrow, which is, um, you know, about 80 science fiction films. And, you know, the, 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 the brief required images from, you know, things like Robocop, Terminator, yeah. uh, Scanners, you know, um, uh, uh, and um, yeah, there, there was a good sort of, uh, I'd say, 10 films had to be represented in there. And there's no way you could get all that portraiture in there and all the all the stuff you needed to get in there yeah. in the space of three yeah. days. So that took six days to do, simply because the amount of work. And that's the longest I've spent on anything, I think, ever. Uh, however, you know, the result uh, is actually quite a nice piece of work. I feel quite proud of it. Um, normally, I hate everything I've just done, but um, <laughs> I'm, I'm that one because I think it worked quite well. 
I saw the uh, I saw well, I saw the documentary in Search of Darkness, and you did the artwork as well for that, didn't you? That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. That, that looked pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. That, that was a, again another one with lots of imagery in it, which yeah. took long. But um, I think the I, I, I had to kind of better that in many ways because I you know I look back at that piece now, and I, I again I just see the flaws in it. Yeah. So for in Search of Tomorrow, I knew I had to really you know go beyond what I did for that one. And um, hopefully, you know, I managed to do that. Have you done part two? Because they're just releasing the part two, aren't they? Of the Search of Darkness. Yeah, I, I've um, I've actually done some pieces of work for that. Um, I don't know how they're going to be used at this moment in time. the The idea was there would be um, um, with some key people they brought back in to do interviews. They were going to do um, character posters. Uh, right. And I think there's a couple artists maybe two or three artists working on those i've done my three um literally it's gonna be a picture of the person and the brief was they'd be holding some vhs covers uh, with you know key film career um i didn't have much time and i was very very busy so i was trying to look for ways of you know making it a bit quicker um there wasn't ways of making it a bit quicker to other than i just say that <laughs> Spines. We're not looking at images on the front of the covers. That makes life a lot easier. And then I just have to create the um, you know title treatments on each of those. Yeah. Uh, so I've done three characters anyway. I, I, I don't know uh, how confident it is at the moment, so I, I won't say anyway. They put some. <laughs> yeah. They're well known characters anyway, though. Awesome. And they're, they're quite simple. But you know, the the, the, the point is they they are just portraits in many ways. The hands are part of the expression of uh, the way they're holding the covers. Um, and, uh, um, you know, you, you can, all I could do really was just imbue it with the, the kind of feel of the kind of 80s VHS covers I did at the time. So in a way, they're kind of quite crude pieces, but that's really part of why they have to look like that as well, though, because yeah. they are a reference to that period. Um, I don't know what they're going to do with them yet, because I think they originally they wanted... Um, uh, 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 a VHS shop in the background of each one, and I just thought, well, that's actually quite a big, tall order. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I actually said no. I said it's not going to happen. So, um, I think the compromise was going to be they were going to do some sort of digital type thing and then introduce that into the background. Um, yeah. So I'm not seeing what they've done yet. Have you watched the documentary? I saw the the first documentary. Yeah, the yeah. in its original. Yeah. Yeah, it's finished it off the other day after four. It's about four hours in length. Watching <laughs> <laughs> in one sitting because I thought I must. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, it's it's all um, there was. I didn't feel there was a huge amount of new information having lived through that era as it yeah. was. Although I think for anybody who was probably just a kid at the time, it probably does give them a, a, a lot more background. Um, uh, that you know, perhaps they wouldn't know otherwise. So, and um, and it's great seeing all those faces on on the screen as well. Anyway, though, I mean, I, I think there are people who probably wouldn't have given interviews maybe ten years ago yeah. about the subject matter, but are actually more happy to do that now simply because also, you know, conventions are such a big thing for um, a lot of uh, the actors now. That um, and they, they they understand what their fan base is and. Um, um, you know, so some, for instance, um, you know, something like Jeffrey Coombs, who's you know, such a great actor, he's done such a variety of stuff. And, you know, he, he goes to Star Trek conventions and, you know, just earn loads of money because of the Star Trek work he's done. 
Yeah. But, you know, for me, horror fans, you know, we always think of, you know, Reanimator and, um, you know, all the stuff he did at that time. Yeah, yeah. Um, and of course, it's, it's fantastic stuff. And, you know, I think he, he well knows that that's very important for people. He's very, very happy to, to talk about part of his past. I mean, to him, it's not really the work he does now, but it's very important. He knows um, that, you know, you, you kind of uh, honour that legacy, I guess, for, for a new generation of fans. Yeah, Go, going back to what you're saying, obviously, with conventions, uh, I think within the past decade, there's been a massive resurgence within like the horror community in particular, especially when it comes to the conventions, but also uh, going back to, like we say, with our whole uh, vinyl re-releases, yeah. different uh, different soundtracks, uh, re-releases like Blu-ray, 4K re- releases and all these different box set collections of all these 80s horror films, 70s horror films, and... Um, yeah, obviously, for example, your artwork is is a big part in that because for me, when I'm looking at buying one of these uh, re-releases again, obviously I'm not buying it just because they're releasing it again in like like what 4K. Obviously, that's part of it, but I want to see some different alternative artwork on there and some good yeah. artwork. And uh, it's, it, again, it, it relates to like the sort of vinyl resurgence as well. But f- for me, when I collect my like, r- records, it's more the artwork that catches my eye first. And that's the reason I'd pick it out or even like own a piece of like record compared to like going buying a CD, for example. If you open up um, a record and you see all the inside of like a gatefold record, you know what I mean? That's that's what I buy it for. That's, that's part of the experience, apparently, yeah, listening is. to it. And I picked up a thing, you know, long back, a, um, a Laserdisc version of Halloween. And I thought that was awesome just seeing the the original cover on the front and inside. They had an alternative cover of Michael Myers against the wardrobe with all the different uh, scene listings in there. That, like, even I don't even have a laser disc player. Like, I can't find one, but yeah. I happily collect them <laughs> just for that reason. <laughs> no, I can I can understand that. I mean, I, I I buy stuff you know quite randomly, and um, it's just because you know uh, I'm a fan myself anyway. Though, so I I. I you know, I'm always on eBay buying stuff I really don't need and don't have space to. <laughs> uh, you know, there's a compulsion which is there. You have to own part of it. Uh, and yeah. uh, and actually, you know, uh, uh, going back to my own past, I guess all the things that influenced me when I was a kid, um, you know, I, I still find myself on, you know, eBay late at night and looking for things, you know, uh, to do with, like, you know, things like the Monsters, you know, TV show or... You know, all this kind of, all this older stuff, the Adams family, um, you know, there were such important programs um, for me at the time. And, uh, you know, to just get a little bit of what that original thing was, yeah. uh, stuff that really inspired you at the time, is it's, you know, it's quite um, it's quite important because it gives you that link to the past. And for me, I think it's, it's, it's essential to retain uh, the, the spark, you know, that brought you to the place you are now. Yeah. And just carry keep carrying that torch because um, it's where you go to when you're kind of stuck for inspiration almost, if you like. You, you, you try to remember what it was that excited you yeah. years ago when you were a kid. You know, what, 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 what was the appeal? You know, what was it about that stuff that you found so exciting? And if you can retain that and actually bring that back, then it's just like, you know, adds a little bit more energy to what you're doing. And I'm, I'm doing it constantly. I really am. Um, and, you know, it's also in the music uh, taste as well. I mean, I, I, I do go back to the music from the 80s and 70s, late 70s, because um, it still energises uh, what I do. 
Um, again, it's because you know you, you want to retain that spark that actually just made you know made you actually do what you do. Is there, is there anything, uh, any horror films in particular, or, or even like bands that you would have loved to work with or love to work with right now? Um, uh, well, in some ways, I've kind of achieved that by doing work with The Damned. Yeah, uh, yeah. I've an album cover for them. Um, um, but, you know, working on that, I, I don't know if you saw the poster for the Night of a Thousand Vampires as it was billed for uh, last year where they took over the Palladium Theatre in London and tried to break the world record for the, the most amount of people dressed as a vampire in one location. <laughs> but, uh, they actually uh, performed you know, an entire show there as a theatrical experience um, in Dumpery Hammer Films. So they yeah. were, you know, within the, the set design, they were projecting stuff from, you know, uh, all the great Christopher Lee films, the vampire, various vampire films. Um, they had a set which was loosely based on um, the the Egyptian Avenue entrance at Highgate Cemetery, uh, for instance, as well. Yeah. And, um, you know, they had images of Whitby Abbey, and um, they also did it in conjunction with the Circus of Horrors, who, who performed on stage uh, as part of the whole thing as well. So you had the damned delivering a damned show with all their back catalogue, and then you had all this visual stuff going on as well. So it was all, you know, this whole big, amazing experience and um, of course, the, the thing which kind of blew everybody's mind away was, um, I mean, Dave Fanian was uh, kind of seemed to be channeling Bella Lugosi in, in the first yeah. part and, and then a bit of Christopher Lee. And then um, there was an interval and he'd, he'd shaved his head completely and um, did perform the second half as Nosferatu with the, the big ears. Sh shaved it in the interval? What? Yeah, they completely shaved his head in the interval. That's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, you can look it up on YouTube, look for The Damned, Night of Thousand Vampires or The Palladium Theatre. You can see images of them. Because at the first when he came on stage, I thought, wow, that's pretty convincing as a bold wig. Looking for the joins, <laughs> you know, there weren't any joins. And so he realised, oh my God, he's actually shaved his head. <laughs> that's definitely <laughs> that's, Yeah, yeah. And if it's a quick turnaround, it was like, he just went back to it. Not just shaving the head, it's also making sure don't cut it at the same time, <laughs> but also then to do a full makeup as well. That's insane. Uh, <laughs> I love that. But uh, I, I, they, they had a little after show um, party, uh, a place called Quo Vardis in Soho. And um, so uh, I was um, there with some friends, and um, uh, I was actually sat with uh, Caroline Monroe, and um, they've obviously been Dracula 1872. Pauline Pert, who'd been in, um, uh, she was in Satanic Rites of Dracula, so it's, it's great to have that little vampire hammer link there. Yeah. And I went to the toilet, and as I was coming out of the toilet, um, suddenly uh, Dave Vanian was there in his full Nosferatu makeup with the what? ears and everything. No, what? Hands. What? Thank you so much. I've met this is Dave's in Nosferatu, what's going on here? <laughs> It was a little surreal moment. Crazy. I, mean, I, I had washed my hands, actually, so it's like... <laughs> 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 mental. Have you, have you heard about the uh, crowbar in London? Shutting. Shutting the uh, door. It's shutting, is it? Is that yeah. as a result of the, the uh, pandemic? Yeah, they've, they're closing, unfortunately, yeah. I, I must admit, I didn't go in there that often. Um, I have been in there, and um, yeah. uh, it was always great fun. 
Um, uh, and, um, but yes, that would be terrible to see that go. So I mean, it's, yeah. quite, it's quite a big place, isn't it? Once you get inside, yeah. you get the whole back. It's like a TARDIS, isn't uh, it? <laughs> it is, no, exactly. Now, did you know what it used to be before it was the crowbar? No. no. It was uh, called La Rue's. It was owned by Danny LaRue. <laughs> the, uh, now, do you know Danny LaRue? He was the one of the most famous drag artists ever. Uh, one of the biggest, highest paid performers in the world in the 1960s. Um, and he had a TV, his own TV show. So it's basically, you know, it was drag when drag was still bizarrely this kind of acceptable thing for Saturday Night Live TV. Yeah, <laughs> that's bad. Anyway. Uh, um, again, go on Google and search him out. Um, but anyway, he, he owned that bar, and um, it's just quite funny how it went from Larue's to the crowbar. The crowbar, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 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 <Further away. laughs> yeah. I guess we'll get on to it now. Then, um, what's your favourite scary movie? Um, well, you know, it's one of those things that's going to change, isn't it? From Day to day, hour to hour. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if you're talking about films that genuinely uh, disturbed me, um, there have been. And I think that the film that disturbed me more than any other I've ever seen, I've never watched the scene again, it was in The Green Mile, which is not really a horror film as such, but the bot execution was really, really upsetting, I thought. And yeah. Really, and I just couldn't sleep for days afterwards. So it just really, really disturbed me because, um, you know, I invested a lot what was going on in the film and um you know it just it just just seemed torturous and just really upsetting so uh that i, I re-watched the quake recently the norwegian earthquake film oh, i don't yeah. think i've seen that okay i recommend it it's um you can find it on uh, i think it's netflix or it might be amazon prime one of the two yeah it's called the quake norwegian film um it's kind of like a sequel i guess to uh another film called the flood same actor, same family, and, and there is like a, a sort of, um, you know, the films do relate to each other, but um, literally, I've, I've literally was grabbing the seat, and uh, you know, it was so tense, honestly, tension in that film is unlike anything I've experienced before. So I recommend that, The Quake. Ooh, yeah, I'm definitely going to be putting um, that on. Yeah, all the films I've seen at the Fright Fest, you know, you watch so many horror films, it, it's very hard to actually... Um, find yourself, you know, uh, um, uh, kind of being frightened. I guess though, it's um, yeah. you kind of because you know the filmmaking process and you understand, you know, um, uh, how, how things are made. And uh, it's very hard to remove yourself and actually see something, you know, with fresh eyes in many ways. But I have to say, the Babadook I thought was really effective, and actually that did kind of um, make me think of when I was a kid watching horror films, which did you, you yeah, see, you know, look through. My fingers like this. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. Going, oh, no, don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> actually had that effect on me. So, um, uh, of course, I know other people saw and just thought, what was that all about? You know, it wasn't frightening at all. But uh, I guess it's what you carry with you and what you what you remember as a kid, things that frighten you, um, you know, th- those things just hanging around in your head. And, um, you know, things get triggered, I guess, though, and, you know, nerves can be touched. And, um so I think things that frighten me probably, you know, are, are reminding me of things that frighten me as a kid. Yeah. Right. Right. So is there standard? Is there standout film for yourself, or that you can continue going back to without being disappointed? Oh yeah, there are many, many of them, uh, and mostly they're quite silly ones, you know, by by most people's um, 
um, from Judgment. I mean, one of my favourite Hammer films, because I love all the Hammer films anyway. Yeah, I, yeah. I, it's endlessly, and I do uh, still. Uh, but the, one of the standout ones, I think, is the uh, is uh, the Lost Continent. And right. um, if you mention this to people, most people haven't even heard of it. It's one of those odd ones. It was made after, um, I guess, in, uh, The Devil Rides Out was quite a successful film for Hammer. And it was you know, Mark's sort of departure from the, you know, the costume gothic stuff. Yeah. And um, they tried to recreate the success of that and the feel of it with um, another Dennis Wheatley story. So The Lost Continent uh, it is a Dennis Wheatley story, game like The Devil Rides Out, and um, has a, you know some occult elements in it. Uh, it doesn't have the devil, for instance, but what it does have is the Spanish Inquisition. Bizarrely, although it's a contemporary setting, as contemporary as 1970, whatever it was, would be. Yeah. But suddenly you have this galleon with the Spanish Inquisition on it, so, uh, and you have to see it to believe it. It's quite unbelievable. It has some terrible monsters in it as well. <laughs> uh, but um, some fantastic character actors in it. I mean, it is extraordinary. And um, as the poster boasts, uh, man-eating sea kelp, <laughs> and that alone <laughs> is worth the ticket price, I'd say. <laughs> so what did, you, what did you think of, because um, we've got this film in our upcoming, uh, we do, we're doing like a horror fest thing at the moment on our YouTube channel where, and the podcast itself where we're just talking about different horror films for every week. And uh, the upcoming one is Dracula we're going to be talking about. Which, which uh, one? The uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula from the 90s. What did you think of that one? For Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula. Yeah, yeah. Long extended title. Well, it's interesting. I did go to the cinema to see it, and um, yeah. there are moments in it which I absolutely love. And I loved the whole... Gary Oldman drinking absinthe. I mean, Dracula drinking absinthe. When did that happen, though? But it's such a bizarre, <laughs> funny moment, though. Yeah. And, um, and I love the castle, the design of the castle. I love the costumes, especially Gary Oldman's, you know, Klimt costume at the end because of the little gold kind of... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Look quite fun. It was also very, very silly, I found, as well. Um, you know, the... Uh, the acting just seemed, you know, kind of completely flowery and theatrical. And um, I mean, I, I remember a lot of people just laughing at the cinema, um, at some of the delivery of the lines. And um, uh, weirdly, it's kind of not unlike the tone of the original novel in many ways. There are, it's quite florid in parts. Um, yeah. And uh, so kind of it, it kind of has some of the essence of the original novel, I think, which is quite interesting to see. Um, you know, there was an attempt to actually bring back some of that original Bram Stoker, um, yeah. you know, kind of a, a sense of uh, time and place. Um, uh, but, you know, it, it's it's one of those films, on, I, I don't know, I've, I've seen it several times and I don't feel any urgency to watch it again. Uh, however, I'll always go back to the 1958 Hammer Dracula because yeah, yeah. I, I love it. It's a very simple film. It's very cheaply made in that shows now, but it's still got something um, which is quite visceral about it. I mean, the whole, you know, once Dracula transforms and he has this, you know, is this kind of vampire, it actually becomes quite feral. And, um, um, you know, it, it still has a very unpleasant kind of feel to it, I think. Yeah. Um, which, you know, I mean, one of the reasons I love the Hammer films is because um, when you understand the, 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 the period of time in which each one was made, you can understand they're also they're trying to break taboos as they go along. 
Yeah. And that's probably why they were universally loathed by film critics as, as they came out, because people just offended by them. You know, just thought they were just like, you know, it's like gutter, gutter cinema. It's why I say, unpleasant for no other reason than being unpleasant. And, um, and well, I suppose they, there was an attempt to do that, of course. Uh, there was an exploitation element to them, but... Um, you know, as you as you see, uh, as you watch them from the 1950s through to the 1970s, when they kind of finally entered that whole cycle, you can see how they've tried to uh, address cultural change as it went along, and just pushing the boundaries a little bit further each time. You know, to, so you go from this quite sort of staid, um, very English kind of way of being, through to you know this whole kind of. Um, um, let's throw in as many breasts as possible into the whole lesbian vampire cycle, like the Constein cycle. And uh, it is quite interesting how they, you know, how they did that. And they did, of course, one of the final films was um, To the Devil a Daughter, where they really went back to, um, you know, some sort of satanic content, I guess, trying to keep up with, um, you know, uh, the sort of uh, the films that The Exorcist spawned compete with that, which of course they, they just couldn't do because they were still very much tied to this kind of house kind of style, if you like, though. And um, yeah. it's very difficult to break out of that, I think. Though. And, uh, uh, and you can see why that whole cycle ended ultimately. But um, what's interesting now is there's been a reappraisal of some of those later Hammer films. Uh, so, like the two last Dracula films, AD 72 and Satanic Wants of Dracula are now seen with fresh eyes and a whole different perspective. And, um, you know, the fact we still have Caroline Monroe with us and, you know, Pauline Proti popped up in Sound Rights Dracula. I mean, the fact they're still around means that, you know, fans can have that direct link through meeting them as well. Yeah. Get a sense of, of you know, time and place. And um, uh, Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell uh, is one of those ones which kind of, I, I just hit it at the wrong time. I think people have moved so far away from those gothic horrors at that yeah. moment, but it kind of just felt out of, out of time, out of place. But when you look at it now, actually, it's, it's quite a powerful film. It's, it really is really transgressive um, in many ways. I mean, you know, this whole scene where the monster, you know, bizarre makeup as it is, it's, you know, Darth Vader underneath there. <laughs> 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 digging his own grave with somebody else's, you know, grave marker. And it's just this kind of weird, bizarre desecration scene, which just, you know, just looks so unpleasant in the film. And so it's got these kind of lovely, subtle things. In fact, I, um, after my experience working with Richard Stanley on The Island of Dr. Moreau, and really getting into the whole, you know, substance of Dr. Moreau and what he was trying to achieve uh, within the original story, and also to an extent within the films, um, you kind of realise actually Frankenstein and Monsters from Hell is pretty much the only Dr. Moreau. Um, the island being the asylum, um, you know, Frankenstein is Moreau. Yeah. And he's trying to build, you know, life from these bits of other life, if you like, and experimenting and um, using vivisection and such like. And, uh, and it's like a parallel thing. In fact, even the end sequence where... Um, you know, kind of uh, uh, the monster torn to pieces by the inmates. It's kind of echoes that moment in um, the Island of Lost Souls, the uh, Charles Lawson film, where Moreau is you know, confronted by uh, his his own creations. They kind of tear him to pieces. Yeah. Um, so there, there are kind of interesting parallels there, which I think um, it's, it's worth 
exploring if you want to kind of get the full effect of the film, you know, because there are references there. They're not, they're not overt, but they are there. And, and I think that's what is quite interesting about these films. It's when it's like when you go back to the, the say like Universal Frankenstein, uh, when he's obviously played to be this sort of villain character, but when you look at it from a different perspective, it's actually kind of sad. Uh, same with the creature from the Black Lagoon as well. Yeah, yeah. I know what you mean. Understood people. Yeah, like exactly. Yeah. Anyone to be loved. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, should we get on to our next? Segment, just, a, just a quick one. Obviously, you mentioned Exorcist then, and obviously. <laughs> He's coming to that recent news that they're going to be rebooting The Exorcist and they're going to be potentially rebooting Elm Street with it now not being owned by the Michael Bay company that it was owned by originally. So now the um, West Craven Estates now got it back. What's your actual thoughts on the fact that they're going to be rebooting? Should it, do you think they should be left alone or do they want another reincarnation of head spinning and finger gloves and everything else? Well, I think when a film is powerful and it works, I don't think there's any need to go back. I think you have to really bring something new uh, to make something work. And it rarely happens in my experience of, of reboots. I, I've not seen the remake of um, uh, the first remake of Nightmare on Elm Street. I haven't seen that at all. Oh. I have seen the remake of The Evil Dead, uh, which I ah, guess is good. That was, that was good, quite good, yeah. Well, I liked it. I have to say, yeah. I, I, I went to the cinema expecting just to be really annoyed. <laughs> Actually, it had quite a fresh, uh, a new approach to the film. It, it, you know, it was different in texture and tone. So they had tried to do something different with it, and I think they achieved it. Um, and, and actually, it was just quite funny to have that little last moment, you know, with Bruce Campbell turning Bruce, Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I thought that was great because at least that did acknowledge that there was a, a, a legacy going on there, but they were definitely trying to do something different and I, I was quite impressed by that um i, I remember being really annoyed because what really i'm talking about being peeved don't worry one day what peeves me are terrible remakes of foreign language films um uh, generally american remakes you know and uh, i just think why you know, can you not read uh, do you have to remake this with americans <laughs> why are you doing this though when the, the film is perfectly fine as it is and so one of the films I expected to really hate was the remake of uh, Let the Right One In. Oh, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Came Let, um, yeah. Let Me Yeah, and um, I think, well, they simplified the title already, so it's obviously, they're obviously you know, going for a, 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 um, a less informed audience in many ways. And of course it was Hammer who, who um, were behind that as well, which kind of a... Uh, you know, I, I thought, well, Hammer is essentially a brand name now. It's not, they're not an active film company as such, in, in a way they were. Um, so I expected to hate it, and actually I was really surprised at how good it was. And actually, I think it stands up as well as the, the source material, and I, I, I just see them as two different films. It's the same story, essentially, but the, the, the tone and texture is, is quite different between the two, and the, um, the dynamic between the characters is... is quite different as well I, I feel and so I, I can watch all of those films the standalone films and enjoy both of them um, completely independently and not have to relate the two together at all yeah I think that's definitely the thing with reboots in general where a lot are being rebooted where they're still having an impact to this day for example I've seen recently a lot of um, YouTube channels doing reaction videos to watching The Exorcist for the first time 
and he's still having an impact now than obviously not to the extreme as what it was back in the 70s but he still has a reaction where they're like oh this just happened like the uh, scene where he's the Fab Karras sees his mother on the bed. Instead, it's the white room and it's all creepy as fuck. And it's, it shows that he still has an impact. So there's, I just, there's always that idea of why should it be redone when it already still has a message and it still works. The little moments as well, like when the mother's in the attic, she's looking around with a candle. Yeah, and yeah. Something to happen. Of course, the candle just flares suddenly. Yeah. That makes you jump. It's not what you're expecting, but it, it, it's, it's an effective jump scare in yeah. ways but what was interesting about The Exorcist it, was, it wasn't referencing any other film at all no it wasn't trying to emulate anything else and it was you know it was its own self-contained film it wasn't um, you know being knowing either though it wasn't you know, um, making a nod to its own you know pretense if you like there were no um, little asides no little laughs uh, uh, um so it kind of just played it as a straight drama, and um, and because there were you know the actors, I mean there, there were known actors, but there was nobody he could say was a, a genre actor, thus making it a horror film yeah. vehicle. Yeah. Like. Right. Um, so for that reason, I think it works really well, and I think it still stands up today. I, I have watched it more recently, and I really enjoyed. Um, I, I know people hate. The, the heretic, but I really love it still, though. Really? <laughs> I love it. I love the soundtrack. I love the whole look of it. It's silly in many ways, but um, I think it's got a sort of a, a hidden kind of power in there, which I really, you know, I find exciting. And um, even though you can tell Richard Brothers probably sozzled throughout the whole thing, it's still, you know, it's still great, I think. And I, I actually quite like that because he's like this very damaged person and um yeah. i think it, it was in life it just really comes across in the film uh and i loved um you know legion the the the, the mostly direct sequel to the first film yeah with, uh, yeah it follows literally word for word the book the novel as well mm. and because interesting novel is so obviously trying not to be a book about an exorcism it's really you know the rumination the the, the kind of uh the, the questions the exorcism brings up and the sort of, um, you know, how it shakes people's faith and such like and or strengthens it. But uh, it's the, 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 you know, the, 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 it's interesting to see how the Gemini killer aspect comes up as well within the, the, the novel. And pretty much the, the film actually captures exactly the book as it is. Yeah. It get the tagged on stuff, which is stupid, like the exorcism, which isn't part of the novel at all. Um, but just had to be there because people demand an exorcism in a film called The Exorcist. <laughs> uh, that creepy as fuck so scene where it's just silent, the sound design is silent, it's a white room, it's a really long pan shot, and then all of a sudden like, the nurse goes into the room and then walks okay. back out of it and he's there. Oh, it falls, like, yeah. Oh, oh my God. It <laughs> was a very powerful shock moment. I mean, unlike no shop rooms I've ever seen before. And I saw that at a, a Fright Fest many years ago and literally all these hardened, hardened horror fans screamed. Like <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's a very effective. And um, um, no, was it Arrow put out there, the UK release was supposed to be the full restored director's version um, without the silly exorcist um, moment. Right, but it's they've gone to some very odd sources for the material that um, because I've definitely got a copy of it on um, 
DVD and a lot of scenes which they use what looks like a VHS for, where they, they clearly exist in a better form. So I'm not mm. too sure uh, how that happened, whether it's just literally an issue of licensing that, you know, a company didn't want to let them have their source material and so they've had to go elsewhere for it. I, I don't yeah. know what happened there, but um, it just seemed um, a shame that actually the film exists in, in its proper form, but now the only way you can see it like that is through this kind of you know, hybrid... Yeah, um, cut-together kind of style. I mean, all you would do yeah. is take the, the original form, cut out the silly exorcist and, and those bits for the exorcist, and then you've got what essentially is the, the novel, um, which is the, the powerful core of, of the film. Anyway, you know, but we can but complain, and that's it, though. <laughs> is there, there's been loads of good films, such as, um, I mean, I, I'm not going to say it was good, actually. I was going to say the Wicker Man remake and that, but we've had a lot of resurgence again in British folk horror as well. So, like Midsummer, for example, um, still representing that sort of, it's, it's never really disappeared. It's always just been looming in the background, there, all this British cult sort of horror films. But um, the slow, it seems like they're slowly bringing them back as well. Um, well it's quite powerful stuff because, um, you know, it's uh, when you examine the sort of pagan stuff, it's kind of where we all came from ultimately. And uh, yeah, a very powerful, um, you know, uh, um, it's like an eternal struggle between um, paganism and Christianity and how Christianity took elements of paganism just to kind of make it more palatable for the locals, if you like. They, yeah. so, you know, you have this kind of whole witchcraft thing um, and then you have Christianity, which, you know, also, you know, brings along its own miracles and magic, if you like, in a way. And it's like trying to sort out, you know, what, what actually it's worth holding on to and what's worth, uh, um, what, what do you jettison? I don't know. But um, because we have that very re- rich, deep history here in the UK, especially, um Europe, obviously, as well, but uh, you know, we have you know all these amazing places still. Churches built over pagan sites. Um, we have that real literal history here of genuine folk horror, and um, you know, it's, folk horror is you know, like witch burning, for instance. I mean, that that all was all real, all happened, and those places, largely, you can still visit. You can visit squares where they used to burn witches, you know, um, uh, and you know, for instance. Um, you know, which kind of general does actually tread through some of those places where things actually happened as well. Uh, um, I, I've spent um, Saturday going to some of the locations for Blood on Satan's Claw this last weekend. Um, one of those places is still there, and um, you know they look exactly the same as they did in the film made in the seventies, but they probably are exactly the same as they were uh, when they were built originally. Yeah, in the case of the church, you know, hundreds of years ago, it's like flint. Church was essentially a ruin, but they use it in Hammer as the Witches as well, because um, it's just a great location. Uh, and you know, these places are all there to visit. We spent um, uh, five days visiting all the locations from the Wicker Man, and again, those places are all still there. Amazing. And uh, whereabouts, know, whereabouts were they filmed? It's all pretty much in one place. I'll say one place. Is, uh, they they located or uh, they used one little town as a base. Yeah. Uh, it was called and then everywhere you have to travel maybe sometimes 20 miles maybe further everything's accessible from there um so there are the gardens with the palms which literally are a kind of like victorian folly if you like though that it literally is it has a microclimate the area so 
actually it's a bit like summer isle it does you can actually grow ponds there and exotic fruits and exotic flowers so it's right. you know, there's some reality there as it is yeah, yeah. um the, the, the various locations all still standing um uh and it was just quite amazing to go there these that they built two wicker men and if you know they, they, there was one which is like a part wicker man which yeah. is the end scene when you see um the, the you know the, the head falls off and you see the sunset well obviously they built a second wicker man and just you can actually see a little um, piece of metal sticking out of the ground obviously where a rope was pulled through so they could just pull the head down at the right moment set and then so, so there are stumps there where they built that particular prop um and then there's the holes in the ground where the original stood, uh which is all gone there's nothing there we, we yeah dug deep actually in fact um where is it here what you actually dug dug down just to see if you could get a piece <laughs> no way did you get a piece it's a bit of the wicker man. Oh my god! No. <laughs> right, right, boys. We're going. Uh, we're going digging. Get <laughs> <laughs> the cameras. We're going. <laughs> rotten wood right at the bottom. You literally it's like arm deep, just scraping around there because everything's gone. Otherwise, it'll be taken away. But um, it was great seeing, uh, for instance, the um, scene where. Um, you know, it's the climax. He, he goes into the cave. He's you know lured into the cave. Yeah. Goes up and appears at the top of the cliff, and then is taken up to the wicker man. Well, the the beach, it's all exactly as it is. You know, the cave entrance is still there. The cave entrance is not a cave; it's like an old cove in a rock. Right. So literally, he walks in, and there's nothing else to go to. So he must hit behind <laughs> the rock. Cuts <laughs> <laughs> to Walkie Hole in Somerset, which was the actual cave they use. So they go through that, and then they cut again to where the wicker man is. Um, it's it's a different location to where the beach is, yeah. uh, but um, again, when he emerges from the cave, it's not a cave entrance or exit. It's actually just a hole in the ground where he's obviously hiding, and then have to climb up. And be crazy. crazy. So yes, yeah, you kind of um, you get a sense of the film craft and the you know the power of editing. You just believe all these things are all one single yeah. sequence in many ways, but they're not. They're all completely different places. Oh, there's one place I've been meaning to visit. I've been only oh, been down in London. Uh, I still haven't been there yet. It's where they filmed the, the Slaughtered Lamb, you know, from American World oh, yeah, in London. Because yeah. um, I know that was in London, and then we, you've got the actual well, two, two places. Yeah, yeah, there's one in Wales, isn't there? The there's actual exterior in Wales. Yeah, and then the other places um, I went to actually the weekend, uh, which is um, it's kind of just outside Guildford, right? And, um, so you go in and actually the layout is kind of pretty much there where the pentagram was on the wall is now like a, a sort of a hole knocked through to, to go to the other bar. It's just like a, almost like a window um, arrangement. Right. Um, but the flagstones are there, the door arrangement's still the same where the dartboard was, there's a picture on the wall now obviously, but the bar's in the same place though. Um, so you get a sense of, of you know, um, uh, of, of American Wolf in London when you go there. Yeah. In fact, my friend, a friend of mine, um, when we went to the exterior in Wales, he, uh, he he filmed himself going up to the door as if to go in. But of course, it's a, it's a private home. You can't just you know, knock on the door and walk, walk in or anything. Uh, and then he made sure he was wearing exactly the same clothes. It's like a year and a half later. Uh, so, uh, so he could film himself walking into the pub. <laughs> oh, so he cut, he cut him, he cut oh him. Oh my God. Yes, no like, way. That's a, that's a perfect idea. That's crazy. That's amazing. <laughs> I like that. It's very funny, isn't it? 
It is crazy. Like you don't realise how much history history there is to places. Like again, um, the, the Whitby Church. Um, mm. That was the inspiration for Bram Stoker writing Dracula. That was part of that. And, Imagine uh, when, you, when you wrote that, there was still um, a big central tower, um, square tower, which it was standing at that time when he he wrote the original novel. It's no longer there. It collapsed. Uh, but right. uh, um, his great grandnephew Dacre Stoker has written a sort of a, you know, a kind of extension of Dracula. Yeah. One key scene takes place in the tower, um, which as it would have stood at the time. Oh wow! He's, yeah, I've seen him coming back because they do the uh, Whitby Goth weekend as well, don't they? Where the uh, the celebrations down there, and he's actually he's uh, I think he's come back there to actually do some speeches and talks and stuff like that on it for it. That's why yeah, I went to. Yeah, yeah. On, was it last year? I think it was though the beginning of last year. Yeah, but uh, um, yes, yeah, so it's been great for him because he's you know he's he's doing a lot of research into the writing of the the book, and um, yeah. obviously being family, he's had access to family materials which have been sort of boxed wow. up for generations. And uh, I wonder what's in there. <laughs> oh, in interesting materials, I mean, it's all about you know yeah. really. Um, Bram Stoker's own life and, you know, the sort of thing yeah. around him. And, um, you know, he, he lived in London, as you know, for quite a while. He managed the Lyceum Theatre and um, little things like um, uh, in Brick Lane, there's a little road going off of that, or, uh, which um, it, within the novel, Dracula, uh, Dracula places six coffins. Um, basically, he rings London with coffins, as, you know, places he can go to, to relocate. And, you know, yeah. Um, detection and uh, but there are six that were taken to Brick Lane which kind of links slightly into the Jack the Ripper thing as well though which happened in the area because the the Ripper murders happened during the period of um, seven or eight years when Bram Stoker was writing Dracula yeah um, and so th those kind of fed into some of the um, ideas within within novel as well uh, but um, uh yeah, it, it's it's it, there are odd things. For instance, um, uh, um, Bram Stoker was a very sickly child, which um, he almost bedridden and wasn't expected to live. But something happened at some point when he was about, I think, uh, was he about seven years old? I think something happened, and um, basically illness went, and he kind of gained a lot of strength. Became and immortal. <laughs> <laughs> He became, um, you know, super athletic, and yeah. um, you know, uh, 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 you know, kind of gained all this incredible knowledge, and um, you know, it's it all put down to this uh, uh, the nurse, the person who's nursing him, which um, if you could extrapolate from that, you know, was she a vampire? Did she bite him? <laughs> well, in his own way, yeah. way, he's, uh, he's achieved his immortality within his from his uh, books. Well, it's true, but of course, when Dracula came out, uh, Bram Stoker was well known as the manager of the, th uh, the Lyceum Theatre. I mean, you know, he was well known already uh, before Dracula um, was published. Yeah. Because um, well, I didn't realise that uh, he was involved very heavily in the literary scene in London as well, though, that uh, yeah, he was good friends with Oscar Wilde. And uh, he was the only person who, would, who stood by Oscar Wilde when he was jailed, who was going to visit him and remained loyal and his friendship to him was when everybody else, you know, abandoned him. Yeah. And also he, he knew Mark Twain very well. Mark Twain lived in London for a while and Bram Stoker was his literary agent for the UK. So it's interesting when you oh, kind of um, make all these connections. 
And of course, Henry Irving, the actor he absolutely adored and admired, which is why he came to London in the first place um, to work with. Uh, you know, Henry Irving's, you know, um, persona, I think he, he'd, um, whether it's Shylock, I think maybe he was playing uh, on stage and that kind of became a sort of template for, um, for, for, for Dracula within a novel as well. Uh, so there's all these, all these interesting little um, markers you can, you can trace around London and Scotland was another place he spent time in as well. The uh, inspiration for uh, Dracula's Castle um, it is a place on the coast uh, uh, in, in Scotland, which um, again has been looked at by Dacre Stoker and uh, there's some sort of weird configuration about the place as well, though, which uh, makes it quite <coughs> unique. Of course, Bram Stoker never went to Europe at all. He never, um, never went to Romania or Transylvania. That was all just, um, you know, stuff he picked up from his research. But uh, yeah. an interesting name, Dracula, came from um, a book uh, which he picked up in, in the library in Whitby um, when he's doing some research. Just that um, the name was just there because it was always Dracul. Yeah. Uh, but then I think it being spelled with, uh, with an A on the end uh, in, in this one kind of piece of text, and that's where... Yeah, he knew that that was the name he was going to use in the book. It's crazy how things come together like that. The library's a fish and chip shop now. <laughs> Is it really? <laughs> That's insane. How things change. <laughs> fish and chips. Shame, yeah. <laughs> it's not oh, even a steakhouse because that'd be quite funny, though, wouldn't it? Like, you know, when you steak a vampire, but yeah. You can never get, but. Uh, <laughs> Man, they've, they've missed a perfect opportunity there. Oh, yeah. That would have been a great selling point for visitors to uh, Whitby. Well, of course, there's another uh, fish and chip um, connection as well, because uh, um, where you know Boris Cog was born in South London in Peckham. Yeah, and his the place where he was born is now a fish and chip shop. <laughs> what? <laughs> we got Frankenstein. Oh, I'm British. <laughs> <laughs> Bloody British people and those chips. <laughs> <laughs> oh man yeah I think uh, I think that pretty much wraps it up I don't know if there's any more questions you guys uh, got or anything any other topics you want to get on there is but it's way off topic we did talk about this a while ago but it was about deciding on colour palettes for films because we didn't oh, yeah. really touch on that alright yeah yeah go for it again it's um, um, it's intuitive often spontaneous but mostly it is you know when you get those little flashes of images in your head that the, 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 the layout when it comes to usually comes loaded with its own colour palette anyway though. so my job is to try and recreate what I've seen in my head it doesn't yeah. always exactly the same and sometimes you have to change it a bit but um, generally I, I do have an idea about how colour should work in something and again uh, if I'm directed by clients over colour which is very rarely it, it will usually be can we not use this colour? It's like, not what colour do they want? <laughs> yeah, which I suppose is sometimes better because it's going back to the limitations, like we said Exactly, earlier. exactly. Yeah. So yeah, again, it creates a little challenge for you to, to um, um, make it your own, although in some ways it's theirs, but you kind of, you, you wrestle it away from them and make it yours. Yeah, it seems like this uh, crazy thing to interpret an art form into your own art form, but also, you know, try and make it your own at the same time. Yeah, but I mean, also my job is to um, make it appealing to the people who are going, ultimately going to be, you know, the, the, the yeah. consumers, if you like. So, And um, 
almost trying to second guess what what people would like to see um and, and actually also what they don't expect to see more importantly because that's you know your job is to actually add some element of surprise into the work you do so you you, you in the same way talking about uh, when you repackage a film that's been repackaged so many times what you have to do is try to give it a new angle a new new kind of life which wasn't there before and that that's the the you know the challenge i have to keep trying to to meet all the time and um and that's why you have to look at these films over and over again sometimes just to almost to ignore the stuff everybody knows and just look for the bits in between and that's where the key to, to a new arc always lies yeah picking up the subtleties of what it provides yeah exactly another thing i did want to ask which has gone out on my mind very quickly um, <laughs> <laughs> it's typical that isn't it um Oh, this is gone now. Go on, go on, bring it in. Don't do that, that makes it worse. <laughs> is there clues we can give you, though? Is it related to a film? Is it music? Is it uh, it was um, oh. Yeah, I remember. There that. you go. <laughs> <laughs> if you did, it works. <laughs> um, it was about how you approach work now. What is your preference? Is it back, Is it always you prefer to approach it painting? Or is it sometimes, as we've mentioned, the Photoshop route? Yeah, I, I don't even consider Photoshop as a, an option anymore, though, because I mean, other people do it. There are so many artists using digital techniques, and, and they, do, they do it fantastically. I, I couldn't possibly come up to that standard at all, because what I know is the paint that I use. And because there's so few people now um, painting, um, I mean, there are exceptions, obviously, um, and, but largely it tends to be acrylic or oil. Um, the, the, the paint that I use, um, very few people use now, I remember um, having two pieces in a group show and um, uh, the other artists were there as well. And uh, <clears throat> one of the other guys came up and said, oh, what are you using? I said, oh, I'm using, um, you know, designer's gouache. He said, designer's gouache? Nobody uses that anymore. They... And I said, well, I do. <laughs> I do. <laughs> so you're wrong. <laughs> right. I've got one last one because I've realised we've kept you for quite a while now. But I thought I'd wrap up with this. There's a nice little bow on this podcast. So obviously you've done loads of impressive work over the years, but if you had to put it down to one main one that you really hold close as a piece of work that you've done, which one would you say it is? Well, in terms of... um Something I'm happy with, or <laughs> yeah, I guess. I mean, is there is there one piece of work that you really like hold close as like your favourite? Would you say? Um, I try not to do that. Uh, <laughs> well, the thing is, you know, what I have to do is always keep looking ahead, yeah. anticipating better work uh, as I go along. So it's not helpful sometimes to look back unless I'm actually there to just you know. Be self-critical if you like. Yeah, I can see where things have worked and where they haven't worked, and where they have worked, then I'm, I'm happy that's happened. But um, I, I have to really um, be a harsh judge in order to improve, if you like. Though, but there are pieces that I think that um, have retained what I wanted them to actually have to start with. And Freddy's Revenge would definitely be one of those. Yeah, um, and. Um, uh, I'd even say that, that that recent piece I mentioned earlier on, In Search of Tomorrow, I think it is a, a strong piece, which I think um, I'm not, I don't feel that bad about. So 
the fact I don't feel bad about it actually must be a good thing. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I, I've got stuff I'm working on at the moment. I, mean, I, I think I've done some of my best stuff in the last, um, this recent lockdown. Uh, for instance, I'm very, I, I can say I'm very happy with the um, Dawn of the Dead piece I did, which is a private commission. Um, I feel that achieved exactly what, what I wanted it to do and actually sufficiently different to everything else that's gone before mm. to be its own unique piece. And in fact, um, I'm working on something at the moment, which uh, I don't think I've, I don't have a problem talking about it because it's it's um, ultimately it's going to have to sell. And um, it, 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 I think you know the, we're looking at teasing it some way anyway. Though, so uh, it will be a limited edition um, poster for the original Hammer Dracula, 1958 Dracula, and which is almost a holy grail in some ways of a job to do. And also, you know, it's potentially a big curse because, um, you know, everybody has their, again, ex expectation of how a poster for that film should look and a new, especially a new poster for that film. So what I've got to do is be true to the film and its original spirit and look and yet also lift from it um, something which, you know, speaks to uh, another generation, if you like, and tries to um, create the sort of the, the, the excitement that, that film originally gave uh, to its, its, its audience, original audience. And um, and also, you know, playing on, you know, obviously those two great actors, Chris Lee and Peter Cushing as well. And then trying to bring something that hasn't been seen before without actually adding something yeah. that doesn't exist, if you like. And, you know, one of the little things I really wanted to do was um, you get a, a sort of, there's a map painting of the castle. You only see part of it. You only see, you know, literally the entranceway pretty much and a hint of a turret. Just trying to extend how that should have looked. How do you see more of it as well and, and bring that into the poster? Um, but uh, I won't say any more than that. Anymore. So will you be selling those out prints um, individually on, on your website then, yeah? Uh, well, uh, initially it's going to be a limited edition print. Uh, yeah. I think... We're looking at maybe screen printing. We're not too sure full colour screen print, um, and I think the edition will be it will be quite limited, 150 perhaps. I think we're thinking at the moment. Yeah. Uh, but I've written into the, the contracts, and it's licensed with Hammer as well, though. So it's, it's an right. official license item. Oh wow! Uh, so um, they they have their potential use of it if they want to take it further into other merchandising. That's written yeah. in the contract. That's fine. And I've also written in that I, I want to be able to do A3 prints to sell at conventions or anything as well, though. So, yeah. uh, so, so it will be available in some other form. Um, but what I won't be able to do is recreate the full-size version that they do because that has to be a limited edition. Yeah. Whatever form it comes in. But anyway, that, that's um, that's a, it's going to be a challenge because you know I, I have to make it something that I, I'm happy with because I love the film so much and I want yeah. to other people to see what I like about the film and what I do and also please all the fans out there with the legions of Hammer fans, young and old, especially the older ones who will be very, very fussy about it. Um, and, uh, you know, hopefully not disappoint anybody. And how long do you have to do that? Do you have a deadline on that? Uh, well, the sketch is now approved. In fact, it's approved this, this afternoon. Um, so I'm probably going to make a start on it tomorrow. Actually, not tomorrow, it will be Wednesday, because tomorrow, actually, I'm, um, another exciting day out in another cemetery. I'm going to Kimball Cemetery. All scenes from uh, Future of Blood. 
And, uh, and funnily enough, there's, there's a music reference as well because it's where they uh, photograph the cover for Phantasmagoria, the Dan's album, Phantasmagoria. Um, right. That's Kensington Cemetery as well. I'm going to try to, I'm going to locate that exact little angle they use on the album cover as well and just take a couple of pictures there. But, um, um, but yeah, that's a fun day out. I, I do love a cemetery. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I went to uh, Paris uh, a couple of years back and I visited the, is it Piri? Yes, yes, I know. Yeah, well. yeah. and I, I completely didn't even realise Jim Morrison was buried there. Yeah. And then I, um, I saw a couple of people around uh, this gravestone. I was like, oh, this is a bit, uh, a bit weird. And I went, I went there. They, I mean, they could have been visiting family, knowing me. I was just being normal. <laughs> <laughs> um, You're going on, like, yeah. What are you doing? <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, I, I looked at it. Yeah, it's, it's literally a small little plaque for Jim Morrison. You walk past, and there's all these massive crypts and everything. It, it looks absolutely beautiful there. Yeah, uh, Jim Morrison's got this little. It's a little spot though. What does it actually say on there? Does it actually say this is the end? <laughs> because it um, <laughs> beauty in a way. Let me have a quick look. <laughs> what is <it>? uh, <laughs> <laughs> anticipation now. No pressure, yeah. mate. It better be impressive, that's all I can say. If it just it's says Jim Morrison, <laughs> that's it. So maybe it says this is not the end. Be <laughs> so it says. Dot dot dot, my friend. <laughs> oh, I can't read that last bit there. Um, I'll cut. The, I'll cut all this silence out on the video. <laughs> big damn, big damn. <laughs> I'm trying to find a good photo of it. Uh, I was going to try and find mine of it, but it's probably got to take forever. So it says James Douglas Morrison, 1948 to 1971, and it says Kata. Ton, I don't know what that says. Cataton, I don't even know. It's something in Latin, I think. Cataton, animo, I don't even know. I'm not even going to do it. I can't speak Latin. Well, not very impressive anyway, though. No. It, it didn't say that um, uh, he was cataleptic. Did you know anything like that? <laughs> no. That's, that's it. Okay. You think it'd be like? I'll, I'll find out. Well, yeah. I'm just going to Google it. What does it say? Oh, Morrison's great. My Google search should be weird. But it's just the way it's like it's it's kind of like hidden away. I mean, obviously, you'd think with Jim Morrison it'd be a big, big massive grave or something in the middle of all the, especially in that cemetery itself. So I was quite surprised when I saw it. So it says Google that the. On his current headstone, it bears obviously what he said, James Morrison, and then the Greek inscription, Cataton Demone, whatever that is. Um, and then it says its literal meaning is according to his own, um, which is usually interpreted as true to his own spirit. I'm going to make this Yeah, funnily enough, yeah. Um, the interior of the cramps always claimed that. Um, when he performed on stage, he was taken over by the spirit of Jim Morrison. <laughs> I just think I went all two. That's all I think I went to be And they shall come. <laughs> Did he also have a, na- a naked Indian man? Yes. <laughs> God. Well, I think that's a good way. Uh, yeah, we're good. Yeah, we're good. Yeah. This is the end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we have to <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, why, yeah. 
<sighs> yeah, thanks, well, thanks for coming on anyway. We really appreciate it. Well, that was a great fun. Really enjoyed it. We'll do a fake yeah, goodbye and then we'll speak yeah, to you. Yeah, we'll do a fake goodbye <laughs> and then have a chat. So thank you very much. Absolute pleasure. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. So that was episode 40, the big 4-0 with uh, Graham Humphreys. I said that in a very northern way then, didn't I? That was episode 40 with Graham Humphreys. Yeah, you did, just yeah, to give you an answer. Yeah. Um, if you want a less northern version, <laughs> go listen to our Bristol Friends, Just A Girl podcast and Karma Radio, if you don't like the sound of our voice. And if you didn't know, the past 10 episodes we've referred to as the Great White Buffalo, our reference to um, Hot Tub Time Machine, where he's like, Great White Buffalo, Great White Buffalo. Great, Great White thanks, Buffalo. guys. Great White Buffalo. So have a listen back to him. There's some banging guests, and that's why it was considered our Great White Buffalo. Great White Buffalo. So, yeah, enjoy them. <laughs> <gasps> And if you haven't already, make sure you check us out on our social media channels at Enable Podcasts. If you don't know what social media is, that mainly consists of Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, where you can find all, all of our episodes on. So make sure you can check out on that if you can't be asked pulling up Spotify or whatever else you listen to podcasts on. But anyway, we've also... And then you should also go check out Graham that yeah. we've linked below. <laughs> yes check out we're going to be linking everything below so if you're really curious about his work and want to know more 100% get on that check out his book not get it on Amazon because Amazon sucks they have enough money you go in other news we've been doing a horror fest which this is now a part of this set is October and we are spooky people so make sure you check out our second instalment, Horror Fest, where we're going to be talking about seven more films to check out through the entirety of October. That's out tomorrow. Uh, or if you're listening to this in a year from now, that was a year ago. Um, where have yeah. you been? Thanks, pal. Sick. Thanks. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> bye. Great white buffalo. Great white buffalo.